Hey guys, week two of our spring break road trip finds us venturing out onto a new path. Last week as we set out, we followed Jesus as he, as he made his way down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem and to what we now refer to as the Last Supper. And if you remember, if you were here, you remember a question hung over that journey. The question was the same question that every good road trip starts with. Who's driving? Because as we saw last week, whoever's driving, well, they have control over the trip. Where we're going, how we're getting there, when we're going to get there, and all the stops along the way. Now today, on our Easter journey towards this promise of Jesus's, that for those of us who would follow him, we would find new, abundant, and resurrection life. Well, this road trip of ours, it's going to have a second road, and that road comes with it, has a second question. It's one that actually flows quite naturally once you've determined who's driving. This Easter, we're examining what I'm calling the four roads of Easter, the ones that literally, physically, and metaphorically Jesus took towards resurrected life. And my premise, my premise is that as we find our life, we find it as we follow him down these four roads. Last week, we looked at the road into Jerusalem. Today, we're going to examine the path towards Gethsemane. When our kids were a little younger, Joan and I, a couple of times, we would go into their rooms and wake them up and tell them to get ready because we were going to go on a surprise road trip. Now, they had no idea it was coming. We just told them how they should dress for and to get in the car because we were heading out on our adventure. I'm not sure who it was funner for, the kids or Joan and I. The fun factor of watching them in the back seat, full of excitement, looking at the window for some landmarks, trying to figure out what the destination was, where they were going to wind up, it really was priceless. And for them, it was a ton of fun. I mean, think about that, right? They're, they're in the back seat of the car. They have no control at all over where they're going or when they're going to get there. But yeah, I think they would tell you that was the funnest part of the trip. Why? Well, because they trusted the driver. You see, they didn't sit in the backseat full of fear or dread or, or even though they didn't know where they were going, they, they were expectant because their trust in the driver enabled them to not just rest, but to almost wait expectantly for the good that awaited them. See, here's the, here's the deal. Once you answer the first question of any road trip who's driving, then the second question flows quite naturally. It came from my kids in the back seat repeatedly as we drove. That question, where are we going? And so when we're, when we're not driving, we actually have a choice. We can backseat drive the whole way, right? Like, no, don't go left, go right. Wouldn't Route 80 be faster than Route 78? Slow down, you're going too fast. Speed up, this is taking forever. But my kids never did that. Why? Because they understood who had control that he knew where he was taking them, and, and they trusted the one with the keys, loved them, and had their best interests at heart. In fact, leading up to a, a road trip like this, it's not just metaphorical for God. It's, it's actually historical for God and the way he interacts with his people. Think about this, right? When, when God was leading the nation of Israel out of their years of bondage in Egypt and taking them to the land promised Abraham centuries earlier, a land that he told them was flowing with milk and honey, kind of like Joan and I taking our, our kids on these trips. They oftentimes ended up at an amusement park. Well, for the nation of Israel, this journey involved what should have been a short walk across the Sinai Peninsula. 
except God had the keys to the car. And whoever has the keys gets to decide about the trip, the stops, and the destination. Moses records that when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. I read this week one author's descriptions of this event, and he noted that the Common English Bible translation uses a wonderful phrase to describe this scene. It says that God led them on, quote, the roundabout way. I mean, imagine the people's surprise, right, when the cloud God sent to lead them turns south instead of northeast, where they, where they know they're supposed to go. See, they've got to be looking at this pillar and going, hey, I think the driver is directionally challenged. But, and here comes the whole point of this second road towards Easter, but to God, listen to me now, to God, who they are, who the people are, is more important than where they are. Who they are, well, they're easily discouraged, they're lacking in faith, they're viewing themselves as slaves who are without power. You see, it only took one day to get them out of Egypt, it was going to take 40 years to get the Egypt out of them. This is the lesson of the path to Gethsemane that Jesus took. Honestly, it's one of the keys to understand God lead, God's leading in your life, period. And here it is. God's primary will for your life is not the circumstances that you inhabit. It's the person you become. I, I, I shared this with a couple of you this year. My family and I are reading through the Bible in, in one year together, and we meet on Sunday nights to discuss what we read that week. We're using a plan that's laid out by the guys at BibleProject.com. There's fantastic resources there. If, if you haven't checked them out, you should. The other night, Courtney uh, was sharing in our time together that it seems like in reading uh, big chunks of the Scripture, all of these stories seem so similar, almost like the same thing just keeps happening in the history of God's people. Um, it's like you keep rereading the same story. And you know what? She's right. Actually, in our study this week, we looked exactly at that concept. And as we get on the road towards the Garden of Gethsemane together this week, I want to look with you at one example of this that we studied last week. Now, let me, let me explain what I mean, because the path to the Garden of Gethsemane does not actually start in Jerusalem. The path to the Garden in Gethsemane starts in another garden. This one's called Eden. And it was in that garden, a place that God had created to occupy with Adam and Eve in all of their sinless perfection, a place God created and day after day after day, he called it good, seven times good and very good. And of course, then God tells Adam and Eve that everything in the garden too is good. Everything there is good for them to eat except one thing, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And why is that? Well, because God had the keys, it was God's garden, God was driving. But some backseat driving began to occur. Genesis records that when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she decided it was good. She took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So what happened here? They saw the fruit. They desire the fruit, and they took the fruit. See, desire, take. See, desire, take. 
It becomes a human life pattern for all of time. See, desire, take. Which leads to all kinds of problems for all of us. Now, if you, if you know the biblical stories at all, you'll see the pattern over and over again. God comes to Abraham and Sarah, and he promises them a child, but they don't trust God. They backseat drive it, right? They get impatient. This trip is taking too long. And so what happens? They see their Egyptian slave. They take her, and they do it as good in their own eyes. And Abraham sleeps with her and instead of waiting for the son of promise. This pattern goes on. Aaron, the priest, while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the commandments from God, well, that trip is taking too long for Aaron and the people of Israel. And so what does he do? He sees the gold of the Israelites. He takes the gold of the Israelites and he makes a golden calf to worship. My family and I read last week of a, a man named Achan who despite being told by God when they got into the promised land in Canaan not to take for personal gain the gold of the people there, the scriptures tell us that Achan saw the gold, he desired the gold, and he took the gold for himself. You see, the pattern just keeps repeating. It's this pattern of how someone, some individual's personal temptation can create suffering for many. The nation of Israel. God tells them they don't need a king like the other nations, that he would be their intimate leader. But the Bible says that they see Saul and they desire Saul as their king and they take Saul as their king. What does Saul's reign do? It eventually leads to destruction. Some of you know the story of Israel's great King David, right? What does he do? He sees Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop. He desires her. He takes her for himself. And who pays? Well, her husband, right? As he kills her husband to cover up his sin. See, desire, take. Same story over and over again. The repetition, almost building a sense of anticipation that someone someday would come and break this pattern of humanity. Welcome to the path towards Gethsemane. See, Matthew tells us that after this famous supper, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place, place called Gethsemane and said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled, sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. What the NIV translated there, guys, is Jesus feeling sorrow and, sorrowful and troubled. It doesn't do the Greek justice. In the Greek in which this was written, the word there means shocking grief. In the old King James Version, Mark gives us a little more detail about this moment that Jesus was, was experiencing. Mark writes that, uh, that Jesus um, began to be sore amazed and very heavy. Jesus, as he enters this path into the Garden of Gethsemane, he's confronted with a vision too. You see, Jesus sees something, and he's amazed by it, and it causes him shocking grief. What is it? Well, theologians believe that it's right at this moment where Jesus begins to see, visualize, and experience what it's going to mean for him to have the wrath of Almighty God poured out on him for the sins of every man for all of time. You see, G Jesus is not bravely walking towards the death of a martyr, and that's because Jesus is not dying the death of a mere martyr. 
Jesus at this moment is being made consciously aware of what he is about to experience. The wrath and anger and justice of God do every sin and every sinner for all of time. And it is, according to Jesus, almost enough to kill him. Just the thought and the weight of it. You know, the very word Gethsemane in Hebrew literally translates to olive press. That is what Jesus is experiencing at this moment. So much so that Luke tells us that it's at just at this moment, Jesus um, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Literally a rare condition. Physicians call it hematridosis. The pressure was so great, he began to sweat out blood. And why? Because Jesus sees what's coming for him. Luke continues, though, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. I, I love Tim Keller's reflection on this. He says that cup at that very moment, a cup that was the method of execution for many people. The Hebrew prophets, because that's, that's how people were killed, by drinking these cups of poisons, they had come to use the cup as a metaphor for the wrath of God on human evil. Isaiah 54 says, you will drink the cup of his fury and stagger. So the reason why Christian martyrs who died for what they believed in didn't die the way Jesus is dying, they didn't fall to the ground, they didn't find this horror coming down, was that they didn't face the cup. They didn't have to face the justice of God against all human wickedness and evil, which was just about to come down on Jesus. In fact, he goes on, he says, it was in the Garden of Gethsemane that I finally came to grips. I made my peace, as it were, with the wrath of God. Now, it might shock some of you, he writes, that, that a preaching minister was struggling with the very idea of a, of a God of wrath, a God who sends people to hell. But it was in studying the Garden of Gethsemane when I finally came to peace with it because I realized this. The reason why people get rid of the idea of hell and wrath is because they want a loving God. They say, I can't believe in hell and wrath because I want a more loving God. And I came to realize in the Garden of Gethsemane that if you get rid of the idea of hell and wrath, you have a less loving God. If there's no wrath by God on sin and, and there's no such thing as hell, not only does that actually make what happened to Jesus inexplicable, Jesus staggering the way he is, asking God, is there any other way, and sweating blood, means that he was wimpier than hundreds of his followers if there was nothing like God's wrath going on. But the main thing is, if you don't believe in, in wrath and hell, it trivializes what Jesus has done. If you get rid of a God who has wrath and hell, you've got a God who just loves us in general. But that's not as loving as the God of the Bible, the God of Jesus Christ, who loves us with a costly love. Look at what it cost. Look what he did. Look what he, what he was taking. You get rid of wrath and hell, and he's not taking anything close to this. And therefore, what you've done is you've just turned his incredible act of love into something very trivial, very small. And by the way, if the anticipation of these sufferings, if the very taste of these sufferings sent the Son of God into shock, what must have it have been to drink them to the bottom? If you ever want to understand how much God loves you, you don't need to look any further than the path into the garden because it's here where you see how much it cost God to love you. 
When measured by this cost, guys, you need to know there is no one else who has or will ever love you like this. And so Jesus, he at this very moment, he sees what's coming for me as a very real choice to make. Through all of time, every time the biblical narrative shares a story of someone seeing something and being tempted, they do what? They see, they desire, and they take. They have their own way. They do their own will. And the result is the suffering of so many others. But this time, what happens? When Jesus is faced with the greatest temptation of all time, the temptation to see the wrath of God being poured out on him, when right at that moment when Jesus could have gotten up and walked away from it, what does he pray? My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Not as I will, but as you will. Jesus flips the script. In fact, you see this three times. Matthew goes on. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for an hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, Jesus is sharing with them what he's learning in the garden. Watch and pray. You don't fall into temptation. What happens with, with temptation? You see, you desire, you take. And you and others pay the consequences. And he tells them, you have to understand how powerful temptation to your flesh is, your body. You have to be careful because spiritually you might say, well, I believe something, but, but wow, temptation in your flesh will make it hard for you to break the pattern of see, desire, and take. But Jesus does. He goes away for a second time and he prays, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. You see, this time the prayer, Jesus doesn't even ask again for the cup to pass, but instead he, he reconciles himself to the will of God. It, if it's not possible, let your will be done. Well, when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and he went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. What's the same thing? Thy will be done. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. That's the lesson of the path to Gethsemane. That's the second step on the journey that leads towards this new promised life. Thy will, not my will. Jesus flips the script of all of mankind. One person resists temptation, and his suffering provides life for many. See, if the question from week one on the road to Jerusalem was who's driving, then the question from the path to Gethsemane is where are you going? What's the destination? Well, I mean, the destination's life, but the way there, you see, that's up to the driver. The Garden of Gethsemane has one giant five-word sign over the top of it. Thy will, not my will. Thy will, not my will. Think about it, right? Your life consists of these many decisions, these decisions of your will. Your life is the product of them. Do I continue on with the age-old human condition of I see, I desire, and I take? Or instead, do I follow Jesus and change the pattern to thy will, not my will? This is an eternal question. It is a good refrigerator sign for you today. Today, 
today will it be a see, desire, and take day, or will it be a thy will, not my will day? And, and what you see is that our decisions, they impact more than just our lives. Jeremiah 29, 11, pretty famous verse. Half of us have it written on the walls in our house, right? Um, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plan to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. You know that this and other scriptural truths relate a major concept regarding our life, but a radically misunderstood one. The truth is that God does have a plan for your life. That there is not just a my will, there is a thy will, his for you. That's true. And the path that leads towards life has at its crossroads that decision. Thy will or my will. My plans or his plans. His ways or my ways. Where are we going? And since this is so critical, right? Don't you just wish that God, if he had a plan for your life and, and if it was a good one in terms of our future, don't you wish he would just show me the plan? God, if you have a plan for my life, why don't you just show me the plan for my life? I mean, really, how many of us have asked God repeatedly, sometimes over and over and over, about his plans for our life? God, is this the right job to take, the right offer to accept, the right person to marry, the, the wrong one to buy? If you've, if you've ever prayed and asked God to show you which way to go, which one to take, what direction to go in, and you haven't received clear direction, the answer could be this, and, and I came across it this week. It's not mine, but it's so profound. Here it is again. You need to understand God's primary will for your life is not the circumstances you inhabit. It's the person you're becoming. God's primary will for your life is not what job you ought to take. He leaves that decision to you. It's not primarily situational or circumstantial. It's not mainly the city where you live or whether you get married or what house you ought to be in. God's primary will for your life is that you become a magnificent person in his image, somebody with the character of Jesus. That's God's main will for your life. And no circumstance, no matter what, can prevent that from happening. That's why passages in the Bible about God's will for us consistently talk about the kind of person we're becoming. Peter, right? For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Again, it is God's will, what? That you should be sanctified. We could keep going. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. How about Ephesians? Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. See, guys, on our road trip towards life, the question is, where are we going? And the right answer has little to do with circumstantial outcomes. It has to do with personal transformation. If you want thy will and not my will, you have to begin to make your decisions the way Jesus did, based on a different framework. The question about a job is, not only will it provide me the income I need or the lifestyle I want. For example, right? What if the question, what if the question is, will this job move me more towards being the person of Christ God created me to be or away from him? 
I mean, of course, right, with a job, a decision has to be how much it pays. But so too should perhaps be a worry, right? The, the writer of Proverbs thought it should be. He asked, God, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Maybe a worry should be, is this job going to pay me too much? Should I get married? Is this girl the right one? Well, certainly there are things to discern there in terms of temperament and attraction. But how about this? Is spending my life with this person going to draw me into deeper intimacy with Jesus? Or is being with him or her going to be more of a distraction and over time move me from God? Will this relationship make me more or less like Jesus? You see, that is thy will and not my will thinking. My will has to do with getting the circumstances of my life right. The right partner, the right house, the right job, the right income, the right college, the right retirement. Those are circumstances. God wants you to make circumstantial decisions regarding his will for your life with your personhood in mind and not your neighborhood in mind. The garden shows us that we should lay a graph over all our decisions. Will this move me to or away from the Son of God? Is this decision at its heart, is this decision at its heart a I see, I desire, and so I take decision? Or is this going to flip the script like Jesus did? Is this going to flip the brokenness of, of, of the world on its head? Life and blessings flow from this kind of decision making, not death. Jesus said, pray. Pray, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, I was thinking about it. What allowed my kids to sit in that back seat, squished up together on a hot summer's day, not knowing where they were going or how long it was going to take to get there? Heck, sometimes the, the drive out to Dorney Park or Six Flags for an eight-year-old, especially when you don't know where you're going, it can seem like forever. How could they bear it? Well, as I said, they trusted the driver. And here's what they knew. They knew if they were patient, at the end of the road trip, there was a pretty great reward coming. Friends, do you know what allowed Jesus to move from my will to thy will? What allowed him to endure the olive press of Gethsemane? Matthew tells us that after praying the third time, thy will, not my will. Then he returned to the disciples and he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, he said, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. Rise, let's go. What allowed Jesus to set his face towards betrayal and, and his cross? What allowed him to drink of the cup of the wrath of God? Well, it's because he knew there was a great joy coming. The writer to the Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scor scorning its shame, and, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What joy was Jesus going to attain on this side of the cross that he didn't have on that side? Something that would bring him that much joy that he could endure the cup? Well, would it be the approval of God? No, he had that already. Would it be the control of the universe? Heck, he created the universe. It wasn't any of those things. There was only one thing that Jesus was going to have on this side of the cross that he didn't have on that side of the cross. 
It's you and it's me. For Jesus, we were that joy. His love for you sustained him that night in the olive press of the Garden of Gethsemane. And it is this Jesus that died, that death with one thought in mind, that you and I might find him and live. You see, the road into Jerusalem begged who's driving. The path towards Gethsemane asks where we're going. What is your highway of choice, thy way or my way? One path goes towards transformation and restoration in life. The other, well, maybe momentary circumstantial change, but in the end, in the end, it leads only to death. Jesus invites us to the life of the flipped script to put to death the age-old pattern of see, desire, and take and replace it with thy will and not my will. Friends, let God drive this week. Turn your will over to him. Trust him with your destination because we're halfway home. I'll see you back here next week for week three where our trip makes a turn towards Easter Sunday and life.